Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree that falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. <clears throat> in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of God. Perhaps the greatest marketing slogan of the 20th century, just do it. That's the Nike slogan, part of their marketing package, uh, developed at a time that, that that slogan, along with other things Nike was doing, really helped move the company towards major growth. And it's a great slogan for a company that makes athletic kinds of things, sneakers, shorts, tank tops, soccer balls, just do it. That's actually the kind of encouragement we need, in, certainly in that sphere. So you're sitting on your couch and you're saying to yourself, I really want to go to CrossFit. I feel like rolling some tractor tires around and running around the perimeter of a building 15 times and then picking up more tires and waving them over my head. But it's so hard to find parking there. And then you find yourself thinking, maybe I'm not going to go. And then the Nike voice comes in and says, just do it. It's not that you want to do the CrossFit and you don't want to park. You don't want to do the CrossFit and you're just spending your time thinking about it. So stop thinking about it. Just get up and do it. So some have found that that simple phrase has been just an encouragement to get us out of those moments where we overthink things, we make excuses, we really don't want to act. Uh, but in an interview with the, the marketing executive who came up with that phrase, he was asked what his inspiration was. Uh, and he said he had, he had heard of, of, of a guy who on, uh, he was on death row. And at the time of his execution, this was in Utah, late 1970s, uh, for the firing squad. Who does the firing squad anymore? I had no idea that we still did. So anyway, the firing squad in Utah, 1977 or so, and they strap him to the chair. They're about to shoot him. And he says, let's do it. And so, so there it is. What a picture of courage facing death, right? Uh, there's your guy. And, and so, so some people have said, and I don't know that this is true, but at the time that Nike was coming up with the slogan, there was the big um, Nancy Reagan had this anti-drug campaign, just say no. So some people think that the slogan is a, is, is a mashup between just say no and let's do it. And so I think, well, actually, you know, just do it. It, it is inspiring. It's a good thing. But, but to that guy, the, the murderer on death row, who showed courage and a willingness just to act, I might tell him just say no. I might think that, that for him, that might be the better life principle because the thing that you want to do is without thought, without ground, without morality. And so maybe you should not just do it, <laughs> uh, but the person on the couch not wanting to exercise should. And so that's where wisdom is needed. 
Um, the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been looking at this for quite a while now. It's kind of a wisdom 201, sort of an advanced level in that, look, there's a lot of people who don't like Ecclesiastes. It's hard. It's confusing. There could be a number of reasons. But, but, but among people who don't like Ecclesiastes, fools aren't going to be drawn to the book because you have to think. It's pushing you to have to think. And so, so a, a fool might need to be encouraged that they should do something moral, but that they should not act on every impulse. The book of Ecclesiastes is trying to take people who are taking a step in and asking life's hard questions about death, about injustice, all of the complex issues. And the book is not giving easy answers, um, but it's saying, you know, I I'm going to ask the questions you have not yet thought to ask. And what do we do now? How do we make sense of life in this world? And the fool just shuts it off and goes on acting, but, but do, doing whatever they do. The danger of the person who wants to gain wisdom is you become so overwhelmed that you think the lesson is, I better do, do nothing. Isn't, isn't that part of the lesson of Ecclesiastes? Everything is meaningless. It's vanity. Uh, what gain is there? Why bother doing anything? And yet in the midst of, of these themes, these hard questions, you keep coming back to passages <laughs> like this one, where, where it doesn't seem like he's trying to encourage us to sit around and do nothing and waste our lives. And this is where, as a book, we're going to be pushed through the hard questions to a greater maturity if we're willing to, to endure the confusion, if we're willing to be humbled, if we're willing to, to see how this book fits in the greater context of the Bible. Um, but the message for today, to those of you who are thinking, boy, this world is overwhelming, there's so much I don't understand, that then I'm going to wait till I figure it out. The message, if you're on the path of wisdom as well, not do anything, but, but certainly don't do nothing. Just, just find something good that God has given you to do and do it. And so what I'm going to talk about today, what we're going to look at is three things that this passage highlights that we don't know, because that's part of the problem of, of the exploration of wisdom. If I could figure things out and have greater understanding, I have more agency, I have more control. And the book is saying, well, sometimes the more you understand the more you understand of your own limitations. And yet, does that mean you shouldn't act? Does that mean your life cannot be meaningful? No. And so let's consider today some of the things that we can't know, and yet how the not knowing doesn't mean not doing. So the first thing that we're going to look at, this is verse two, you don't know what disaster may happen. Now, that's a hard thing right off the bat. That's the, the, the kind of thing that Ecclesiastes and this, this uh, our teacher, who we call Koheleth, reminds us of these things. Verse two, you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. And the nature of the fool, the fool is not courageous. The fool doesn't anticipate the future. So, so the fool acts without worrying what will happen, not because they're bold, but because they're not aware of what will happen. <laughs> uh, courage needs to be called on when you know what could happen and, and it might be failure. And yet you have the conviction you should act. And so the wise have greater insight to what can go wrong, but still sometimes take that risk or, or do that. Now, you don't know what disaster may happen. That could paralyze us. For many of us, the idea that, that the world is, is not under our control and is not as predictable as we like makes us think, well, then stay at home where it's safe. <laughs> but we know that you're not safe at home. That's the nature of this whole world. You could, you could sit on your couch and have a heart attack while people are, are doing daredevil moves and surviving. And so the solution is not sit around and do nothing, make life safe. The, the idea is understand that there is risk and things may go wrong, but, but rather than being encouraged to do nothing, which would be a, a failure to mature, 
understand that if anything can go wrong, um, don't always wait for tomorrow to do the right thing. That seems to be more of the lesson. You don't know what disaster will happen on Earth. So today, there could be something to do. So don't wait till tomorrow, uh, in a sense. And it's that balance that we need to plan for the future, but we need to act faithfully today. That's where we get when we, when we go with wisdom. So ver uh, verse one and two, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. And the way that wisdom literature works is you need to take time with it because at first, what does it even mean to cast your bread on the waters? And that's where the, you know, the, the biblical interpretive debate begins. You, you put your loaf of bread on the water and it absorbs all the water and it sinks. So what kind of principle is there for that? And then the response is, well, but in ancient Israel, they didn't have loaves of bread, but they had these flat pita-like breads and, and so you'd float them on the water. <laughs> and I think, you know, this is more of a metaphor, more of an image within the wisdom literature. Cast your bread, you know, what is bread in Ecclesiastes? And one of the things I've been saying in the sermon series is that Ecclesiastes is, is in the context of scripture, but, but especially rooted in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 2, where we're to be fruitful, multiply, we're to work for gain. But Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve, where, where they don't trust God, they don't listen, and, and their actions bring terrible consequences. And one of the curses announced of, of here's, a, here's a pronouncement of the nature of life is by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. So the task is still there. Go to work. Try to be fruitful. Try to, to bring about good things. But now it's going to be hard. It's going to be discouraging. It's going to be exhausting. Things will fail. And yet the task hasn't changed. And so that curse, by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. Bread there seems to be in a similar way that, that the question that Ecclesiastes, one of the questions it opens up with is what gain is there for all of our toil? See, work, work is positive. Give your, you know, use your time, your talents and energies, but toil, it's work, but it's hard. It's work that feels cursed. And what gain is there? And, and that's what he's saying is all this work in generation to generation doesn't seem like we're going anywhere and building anything up. And the most we get after all of that work is is bread. It's pretty simple. The amount of work you put in and the, and the output that you get is bread. And so that's the nature of the curse, that by the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your bread. And there's a sense in which bread seems to be uh, more picturing the, the fruit of our toil, that, that our work is somewhat productive, but, but it's hard. And maybe it's not as productive as you would like. And so, so the encouragement here to is, is to cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. So even if you don't understand the water and it coming back, um, how that works, I, 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 uh, I think Louisa May Alcott had said, cast your bread upon the waters and it'll come back buttered. <laughs> I don't know if that's kind of a funny image, uh, but, but here the idea is, you know, you, you send it out and, and, and somehow part of your work is to produce something, the basics, your, your food, your livelihood, but sometimes you prosper beyond that. And, and, and with your generosity, with your, your wise stewardship of it, um, it's not easy, it's hard, but, but eventually it, you, you do prosper. And so, so what do you do with your bread? So, you know, our COVID hobbies, baking bread has become one of the big ones. And it's a good one. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes focus. But at the end of the day, we're buying a bag of flour and we're turning on a faucet, we're making water and we're kneading and we're putting it in an oven. Uh, when this was written, you know, you, you sow your seed, you work hard and you, you have your plants grow and your wheat grows and then you have to, to harvest your wheat. 
and then you have to grind your wheat into, into flour, and then you have to get water when you don't have plumbing, and you have to mix your flour and your water, and you have to make bread when you don't have gas or electricity. And there's a sense in which by the time you get to that loaf of bread, boy, this was a long, hard process. So what do you do? And if you've been with us throughout the series, or if you simply go back and read Ecclesiastes, what is one thing you do? You enjoy it. That's one of the applications. Do you have a loaf of bread after all of this frustrating toil? Well, give thanks that God has given some blessing. <laughs> and in your cynicism, you could say, but there was no blessing. God, God tortured me to get here. And the perspective is, yeah, no, uh, this world is hard. But, but if at the end of the day, you have something in your hands to enjoy, give thanks for it. But now, what if you don't have one loaf of bread, but you have five? What do you do with it? Well, you have one and you enjoy it. But if you have more than that, maybe you put one away for tomorrow and maybe you sell three of them and take that money and buy seeds so that next year you can have more bread. What if your neighbor doesn't have bread? Well, maybe you eat one and enjoy it. You take one and you put it away, but you give one or two to your neighbor and then you sell one so that you can buy some seeds. That's the picture of a wisely lived life. It's hard and you keep going, but what happens when finally you have some gain? Well, you give thanks and you enjoy it, but you steward what you have. And, and, and the two dominant strands of interpretation, some think this is about international trade, cast your bread upon the waters. So, you know, send the ships out, you invest in, in international work, go and, you know, you take your bread and they, they go to the Far East and they come back with tea and spices. And, and so, so you get a return and, and maybe that's what's going on. But there's also been, been a dominant strand of early interpretation about care for the poor. <laughs> if God has given you stuff, just, just be generous with it. If you have more than you need, give thanks for what you have and, and have compassion on those who don't. That's faithful stewardship. And you don't have to really choose between the two. But what we're told is that life is hard. There's toil, but it's hard for everyone. And so do the best that you can. And if you can prosper, wonderful. But you don't know what disaster will come. And so don't become greedy and save everything up for your future. So Jesus tells a parable called the parable of the rich fool. Now, is he foolish because he stored up for the future? No, the, the picture of this is this individual who stored up so much that he says to his soul, now you don't have to do anything. I'm free of toil. I'm free of the hardship of, of life. And I will just enjoy everything that I have. And Jesus' punchline there is, but you fool, you don't know that this day your life will be required of you. So yes, it's foolish to not plan for the future. You do need to invest. You do need to save. But it's foolish to assume a future that may not come. And that's where the wise say, look, disaster can come. He's not saying disaster will come. You need to live as though disaster won't. And so maybe there's wonderful things in store. Be hopeful for the future. But be humble enough to know that you don't know. And therefore, if there's somebody who's experiencing disaster today, don't laugh that they didn't plan ahead. But, but if you have more than you need, share with them. And if you have more than, than, than you're able to share, well, invest in your future, but in a way that that brings fruitfulness. And it's a picture of, of a wisely lived life. And so what do you do if you go to business school and you, and you say, you know what, I'm gonna actually do this where I'm gonna analyze the value of companies and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna find out how to best steward uh, uh, resources in an efficient market, for example. And you say, what am I gonna do? Well, let's see, Tesla seems like a bit of a gamble, but, but we know that GameStop is not gonna be the big profiter. So why don't we short GameStop 
Well, then you don't know that the disaster is that the stock might actually go up. Who saw that coming? Well, well, the people with all the skill and wisdom to evaluate a company didn't plan on Reddit creating this grassroots movement to sort of disrupt the system. And so who saw it coming? Well, people on Reddit did. Um, but a lot of people who have great understanding of exactly how the market works were hit with disaster this week. And so is the lesson pull all your money, you know, get your, get your retirement out before Reddit destroys everything? Well, maybe. Um, but if you, if you put all your money under your cushion in 50 years, you might find that the Reddit crowd had, had one or two good successes, but, but maybe it was wise to, to stay the course. We don't know. And that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. You don't know. The experts will know more than the average person, but the experts can't control the future. And so what do you do? You could stay at home and do nothing, or you could live boldly. The future may be wonderful, so live hopefully, but be humble enough to know that you don't know what could happen. And so if you have something today, enjoy it and share it and steward it well. That's the picture of wisdom. And so I think one of the ways that the Bible helps us with this, but by grounding this in faith with, in God, because Ecclesiastes at the end of the day is saying, we don't know, and, and Koheleth can't make sense of what God is doing. And so you can't, you can't study the world and figure God out so that you won't have to live by faith. That's actually the true wisdom of Ecclesiastes is you'll always have to live by faith. But once you live by faith, then you realize, well, if there's a disaster in the future, I can trust God. But if there's not a disaster in the future, God will give me opportunities to act. And so, so then what do I do? So for example, what is my relationship to the poor? Because in your stewardship, if I lend to the poor, frankly, I'm looking at this guy's life and, and I don't have confidence he'll ever have the ability to pay back. And so the passage says, well, certainly don't charge him interest. That would be unjust. Lend to him and take a risk, or maybe you don't lend and you give to him. Well, then, well, then what return will I get? <laughs> well, you may never get a return from that person. So, so what's, what's motivating your generosity? And if you want wisdom, go to Proverbs 19:17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. So you don't know what will happen. You don't know what happened to this person, but you, you share generously because the Lord has given you either more than you need or the ability to live with less than you have and you share and that person may never repay you. But you live with confidence to say, but, but the Lord is the one who gives. And so I don't know, it's not like if I, if I give this guy $10, the Lord will give me $10 or maybe the Lord will give me 10% over, over 10 years and I'll wind up with a greater figure. Maybe I give $10 and then maybe I'm stuck and I, I wish I had that $10. I don't know. But if by faith, if you believe in the generosity and kindness of the Lord, you can give so that it may not make sense. People may not pay you back and it helps you because when somebody gives to you and you feel obligated, how do I return? Sometimes people are generous in ways you simply can't and then you feel guilt. How can I ever repay this person? And the perspective of faith is, well, if you can repay the person, do it. But maybe you can't repay them. Maybe you could repay somebody else. And maybe you'll never repay them, but the Lord has seen their act of kindness. So Jesus himself, Luke 14, when you have a party, a banquet, don't invite all of the rich and the famous, your relatives, people that could reciprocate, but look at the people who could do nothing for you as evidence that in this crazy world where you have no, no idea what will happen, um, that you live by faith, the fact that you would give to people that as far as you can tell will never give anything to you but you believe that God watches over it. And there's no guarantee that God will bless you because you gave to them. The guarantee is God's kindness and, and generosity continues. So, 
So live that way. You be kind and generous because you don't know what will happen. But you know God is good, so why not do what God would do? And you don't know. <laughs> but faith says this is the better way to live. So I don't know if there will be a disaster or if I'll prosper. But today, if I could give thanks and enjoy things and if I could be generous, um, why would I not do that? So, so you don't have to have all the answers. You can control everything. But you can still cast your bread upon the waters. You can still take what you have and steward it faithfully. So here's a second thing you don't know. Uh, you don't know the way that the spirit comes to the bones of the womb. Uh, it, it, it just, uh, this is verse five, by, by, essentially. As you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. So what's the second thing you don't know? You don't know the work of God. And so you read the Bible and God acts over generations. He acts over, you know, sometimes he acts over the course of somebody's life, over 50 or 70 years. Sometimes he acts over hundreds of years. And in the moment today, you don't know what God's doing over hundred years periods. So it looks to you as there's complete chaos and disorder that God has left us, that God is uh, lacking wisdom or compassion, but you don't know the work of God. And so, so because you don't know the work of God, you might think, well, then why bother? But, but if you know the God who is at work, well, then, then your perspective is, changes. I don't know everything, but I'm going to trust God. And so, so in the same way, you don't know that the, uh, the, the spirit comes to the bones of the woman uh, with child. Think of all of the advances we've made technologically, scientifically, in our understanding of the biological processes of fertilization and growth in humanity. But it's still a mystery. When, where does life come from? This is something none of us have knowledge or control over. But you do not know the work of God who makes everything. We still don't understand how God gives life to this flesh. We understand the flesh and the bones and, uh, and, and DNA and, and all of these various complex things. But at the end of the day, the breath of life is given by God. We don't understand it. So if you don't understand that, understand that there are things that God knows and God can do that you will never know and you cannot do. So what do you do? Do you live at home in fear? Do you do nothing? Do you resent God? Wisdom says, well, you're glad once you realize that you don't know and you can't control things, that there's a God that can be trusted who does know and can control. And so verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not weep. See, the fool is not paying attention. They're acting. And you know, the funny thing is sometimes being foolish pays. You have no idea and you just act and occasionally it works. But over the course of time, you know, the net you know, where, whatever gains there are, there tends to be equal losses. And so that's not the way to live. So the wise study the nature of the world. And we say, but now I need to act in the pro proper time. But when you observe the wind, you're not going to sow because the wise understand if you scatter your seed and the wind blows it away, you're going to have nothing. And so today it's windy. So you don't sow your seed. Tomorrow it's windy. And then two weeks later, you realize this might be a windy season. And so in my desire for efficiency, if I scatter my seed, I'm going to get much less of a return. But if this goes another week or two and I don't scatter my seed, I'm going to get nothing. And so what do you do? You act in this imperfect world. I want the wind to stop so I could carefully control everything so I maximize my investment. But there are some seasons that it's just windy. And what do you do? Do you set that one out? Maybe, but then you're going to set the next harvesting season out. So, so the one who's wise and discerns that the wind is a problem sometimes still needs to exercise the wisdom to act. And so in this world, the world that Koheleth is, is observing, where people die and there's oppression and there's injustice and people intentionally do evil, he can't make sense of this. And so 
So why do anything? Why work? Why be good? And he's saying in the midst of this world, you will not necessarily know what to do, but, but you can't do nothing. And so if doing good, which should bring about blessing for you and for others, this is a hard situation and you're doing good. You, you don't know if it'll work or if people will appreciate you and you think it's not worth doing. It says the one who observes the wind will never do. If you look at the world and its corruption and injustice, you will never have the incentive to do good. And so know that your good doing will be done with inefficiency. And so cast your bread upon the waters, be generous. If God says care for the poor, you may care for 500 poor and none of them may ever come out of poverty. One of them may, three of them will perhaps. Is that a good return? What do we know? If God has given you two loaves of bread and somebody doesn't have one, if you give it to them today and they're asking for another loaf of bread tomorrow, you're trying to live wise, invest your stuff, but, but what do we know? And so if you're observing the disorder of the world, you're never going to act. Wisdom is to recognize disaster could come, the world could be disordered, but I'm still going to act as wisely as I can. I can't time everything. And so uh, there was this show in the 1950s, some of you no doubt are familiar with The Honeymooners, uh, and there's this one episode, so, so you have uh, Ralph and Alice are always arguing, and so they're having this argument because Alice wants to buy a television. So their neighbors, the Nortons, get a television, and Alice wants a TV, but Ralph is not willing to concede that he's cheap. He doesn't want to buy a TV. So she's yelling at him, why can't we just get a TV? And he yells back, I'm waiting for 3D television. And see, that that's the idea. It's not that I'm not wanting to buy a TV, I, you know, and I... I I now don't remember when this episode aired if, if, if TV was just black and white or if it was if there was color. But, but the idea is, you know, in a generation where you're looking at this tiny screen, here's a guy that's saying, I'm not going to buy one now because I don't want to waste my money on a TV because I, I want 3D television to come out. You know, the generation watching that in the 50s, I, my assumption is they would have been hysterical because it's so absurd. Could you imagine 3D television? But here we are today and we're like, well, actually... There's 3D television. He, you know, he was onto something. What he said came about, but it did not come about in his lifetime. And so even though he was not a complete fool for having the concept of 3D television, he would have died never having any TV if he waited for 3D television. And so what do you do? <laughs> well, maybe you wait, but sometimes you, you just you take the black and white TV or the, the color TV with that click where you only get three stations and you have to get aluminum foil to try to increase your reception. You, you don't wait for the 3D television. And so there's a sense that, that Koheleth, our teacher in this book is saying, if you look at the world honestly, you're gonna know that you can't know everything. You can't control everything. You're gonna feel like a fool, but the fool doesn't know that. The wise knows that, but then the wise doesn't allow fear or, or concern about risk to keep them from acting, but, but they act as wisely as they're able. They take what they know and they try to make educated guesses, but they recognize uh, it's humbling. We, we don't have control. And so, um, you know, we don't know the work of God. And, and how often are our theological questions precisely where we, we know we don't like what we perceive the work of God to be? You know, you read Ecclesiastes and you resonate and say, Lord, why do you allow this fool to have power and oppress his people? Why do you allow the criminal to get away with it? And then meanwhile, some honest, hardworking person gets a disease. Those kinds of questions that, that any person, including or especially people of faith, at some point grapple with. This is part of, uh, part of our, our recognizing uh, we don't know, we don't understand. But in the process of gaining wisdom, all, often along the time, we, we feel like, Lord, you do not run this world very well. 
right? Isn't that the kind of thought that we get? Like I'm watching this and I think if I was in charge, I would not have allowed this country to go to war. So Lord, what's wrong with you that you allowed that to happen? Why did you do that? And, and that's where this question of, of not knowing the work of the Lord, it, it brings us, us to a process of saying, how can I trust the Lord when his work doesn't seem to be good? And Ecclesiastes is helpful because it says, okay, let's really look at this world. And you actually don't even understand your own heart or your own mind. You, you have no idea what you're able to do tomorrow. You have no idea why anyone's doing anything. And so you don't know the work of the Lord. And so rather than saying, I'm going to reject the Lord because I can't understand his ways, wisdom is, well, if I'm a human being and I don't know all things, wouldn't it make sense that if there is a God who does know all things, that he might know something I don't know? So what is the nature of the work of the Lord? As we look out at this disordered world with all of its corruptions and we think, you know, as long as the wind is blowing, I'm not going to sow my seed. As long as I can get hurt, as long as I can get rejected, why go out and live boldly and honestly? And have integrity. We look at this world and we think, I'm not going to act in this world, or we act foolishly to think I'm going to be a world changer, and in 10 years we will have solved every problem. That's not wise and discerning. Wisdom is you can make progress, you can get things done, but it could be costly, and there could be rejection, there could be suffering. And so, as we say, once I realize that, I don't know that I want to act. And we understand we don't know the, the work of the Lord, then the theological question becomes. If the Lord looked down at this earth and realized we will always reject God, we will never be wise, we will never be upright, wouldn't the wisdom of God to simply be to do nothing for this world, to reject the world, to cast the world off, to destroy it and start over? And that's where we gain wisdom. We, we don't know the work of the Lord. So then why on earth would the Lord enter into the toil in order to fulfill his promises to make all things new? Well, the Lord is mighty and powerful and wise. Let him come in and do it. And we don't understand the work of the Lord because he doesn't do it in an easy, magical, quick way from the outside. But he sends Jesus Christ, his son, into the world. And Jesus, for example, tells a parable, the parable of the sower, where, where somebody scatters seed and he explains it. He says, this is the word of God. And you find yourself saying, well, well, people need truth. And here's somebody who speaks the truth plainly and clearly. He's not tricking anyone. Wouldn't people resonate to that? Well, yes, people did. People like hope, and Jesus comes and talks about the greatness of the future. Wouldn't people resonate that with that? Yes, they did. Uh, people like goodness. Jesus was good and generous. Wouldn't people resonate with that? Yes, they did. So why, when Jesus came and he announced the good news, did not everyone believe? And Jesus tells a parable that, that the, the problem is not with the word that's sown, because the word will accomplish uh, what, what, where, what it intends, the problem is with this world, that when you sow your seed, sometimes evil comes and snatches it away, or sometimes the, the elements of nature act against this work. The problem is not with God or with his announcement or with his news. The problem is with our world. And so somehow God in all of his wisdom and power comes into the inefficient world, and he announces good news to people who will misunderstand him, and he welcomes people to his table who will ultimately reject him. And we find that somehow... God does something through Jesus Christ. Uh, our biggest fear is, but if I act, I'll be rejected. <laughs> um, if I do this, it will be humiliating and shameful. If I do this, I will fail. And God sends Jesus into the world, and Jesus is rejected. He's humiliated. He goes to the cross, and it looks by all appearances as though he failed. 
what understanding do we have of the work of God that God would choose to do this? When you think about the Christian message, read the New Testament. What is it we should announce? What is it we should be trying to persuade people? Well, I think one of the most compelling pieces of the New Testament is the, the resurrection. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us everyone fears death. Everyone's confused by it, or everyone has some puzzling relationship to the world because of death. So to come and announce that Jesus Christ conquered death, what a, an amazing message. There's somebody more powerful than death, and he promises life in him. That's what we want to announce. And then there are these other things. So in Acts 1, Jesus is ascension into heaven. We, you know, we don't re pay much attention to that. It's okay, this is good. Jesus went up to heaven. But if you understand the, the kingly imagery that Jesus alone goes to take his place of power in a world obsessed with power to say, we found the one who God has put on his throne. He ascended into heaven. And, and as the creed says, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's coming with glory. The Christian message is, is, a, is about the kingdom, the power and glory. Isn't that what we want to tell people? Conquering over death, the rule, the order, the, the establishing of all things. And yet the heart of the Christian message, despite all of these things, has always been the cross. It's this weird thing in a world obsessed with power, wanting good, wanting to know who's in charge, wanting excellence. Why do we not begin there? But why do we say actually the message of Christianity is unlike any other message? <laughs> because it's the message of the cross. It's because we, by nature, don't understand the work of God. And what's wrong with the world is because we misunderstand God and his ways and his purposes, and we bring disaster, and we misunderstand God as he comes into the world and we reject him, uh, that his rejection was for our acceptance. His humiliation was for our covering. His failure was so that we would not be left losers. And the story of Christianity says, before you note his power over death, before you look at the crown in his head, before you recognize one day everything will be made right, understand that the work of God is precisely a work for this terrible universe. This is not some, some weird philosophy that's trying to help you cope. This is an announcement that once you really gain wisdom and see your own helplessness and inability, you recognize the wisdom of God is that his work is something we never could have conceived of. You know, this week, one of the, the greatest skateboarders of all time, Tony Hawk, is auctioning off a skateboard that he, he just this week did a trick on. So, so skateboarders, there's a, there's a trick that's quite hard to do uh, called a 720. You, you go up your ramp and you spin around twice, 720 degrees, and then you land it. He's not the only one that did that. He did do a 900, the only one who ever went two and a half times. 720, other people have done it, but not many, and it's not easy. And he did it a couple of years ago. He's now... He's in his 50s. A couple of years ago, he did a 720. He landed it after many tries, but his, his balance wasn't exactly right. And he wound up going off the ramp and hitting a pole. <laughs> and then he said, I'm too old for this. I'm just not going to do this anymore. So this week, you know what? I'm going to do it for, for a charity. He's going to auction off the board. So there's this video of him going up and, and spinning around twice, a, a gray-haired guy. But the interesting thing about the video, it, you know, there are these compilations these, these days of like 50 awesome things that people do. And you always realize that, you know, there's 50 takes behind it. So you watch the Tony Hawk video that before he nails the 720, he goes up and he falls and he goes up and he falls. And, and after 30 years of 40 years of skating, he falls pretty well. But some of these falls are really hard and he gets frustrated and he's banging the floor and you're seeing this gray haired guy falling and falling and falling because he wants to nail this trick that he can do so he can auction off the board. <laughs> And then eventually he does it. And then he's done. He just, he throws the board down and he leaves. 
And, and, you know, what do you think when you watch that video? I think some of us would be like, oh, I thought he was the greatest skateboarder of all time, that he would go in, he would show how amazing he is. He gets on this ramp, he nails the 720, and then I want to spend $10,000 for that board. He does it and he falls and he does it and he falls. And you wonder, you start to think, is this guy actually the greatest skateboarder of all time? Like if he was so awesome, wouldn't he just be able to go in and do it? And people that are into skateboarding, that's not what they saw because they know that nobody nails this trick. What they saw was not only has this guy done all these amazing things, but just when you thought he should have retired, he no longer would have done this. Here he is, he falls and he's in pain and he gets up and then he nails it. Now it's not, I don't want to buy this board because Tony Hawk is not the, I want, I want to buy the board from the guy who did it the first time. People say, who is greater than Tony Hawk? That he still got it. A gray haired guy falling all over the place in pain. And yet he still nails it. His fans walked away thinking this guy is even greater than we thought. And we have this conception of what God should be like. And the Christian conception comes in and says, whatever God, whatever you think God is like, does God know more than you can imagine? Absolutely. Does he have greater power than you can imagine? Absolutely. Is God wiser and better than you can imagine? Absolutely. But you look at Jesus Christ and you say, wait a second. Before I worship this God, how do I understand that somehow he came into the midst of our suffering and our brokenness and he reveals his unique power and wisdom and glory by doing what we cannot do for us. He shows that his love is greater than ours, his generosity, that that he comes into this world where it makes no sense that you would come in and speak the truth and hand yourself over and entrust yourself to others. But the power of the gospel, the reason that before we announce the resurrection and the ascension and the coming again is because the weak and the fearful and those who face rejection and those who uh, hate the thought of death and those who feel like it's too late will look and say, wait a second, if the wisdom of God is not only that he, he comes and he understands my rejection, he understands my failure, but in identifying with that, he invites me to share in his, uh, in his winning. Well, then there's a place in the kingdom for me. And so you do not know uh, what God is up to. You do not know the work of God. And so in your own individual life, so there's you and your details. Do you know what God will do if you decide to quit your job and start a new job? You don't. Do you know what God will do if you move out of your apartment? Do you know what God will do if you marry that person you've been dating for 15 years? or if you decide to finally cave in and, and get a cat. You have no idea what God will do. But what we're told through the gospel is when you ask yourself, do I know the work of God? Well, you don't know the work of God in and through you in some specific way, but we know in the grand scheme of things because of the gospel, the work of God. What is the work of God? The work of God is to continue in his wisdom, power, glory, and generosity, to make all things new and to give life to those who will trust him nothing's changed. What's changed is we need to trust him because we continue in this broken world, now having to do the things he's called us to do, to live different lives, to be like him, where it doesn't make sense to be kind and to speak the truth and to be generous, because sometimes it doesn't work. But now we know the work of God is that his glory is seen in that. And so if I can trust God for my life and not worry about my life, then I can take risks. I could fail. I could not be good at lots of things but it doesn't mean my life is meaningless because I don't live under the system of the world, but I live under the power of God whose greatness was shown in not that Jesus first was victorious, but that it seemed first that Jesus failed, but he didn't fail because that failure was the means through which God would bring salvation. So now 
I want to go out and I want to have an awesome, successful, easy life where God is glorified. And you go out and you take risks and nothing works and it's frustrating and you fail. And the gospel says, well, okay, maybe you need to learn. Maybe you need to change things, but maybe God's doing something that you don't understand. Maybe you don't understand the work of God in this moment. But if you understand the God who works, keep going. You can have faith. So here's the last thing. We'll have less time for this. Um, you don't know which will prosper. Here's, here's the last thing we're going to talk about that you don't know. Verse six, in the morning, sow your seed at evening, withhold not your hand. You do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether or like both will be good. Look, there's lots of things you can do, but in the morning of it's time to sow your, your seed, in the evening of it's time for the harvest, stick to that pattern. Even though sometimes you can't sow, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like you should reap, even though you're sowing under less than ideal conditions, even though you're reaping less than you like, you stick to that plan. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't know which will prosper. And so, so live your life courageously, recognizing God is doing a lot of things in the world and God is doing a lot of things through you. And so people have different strategies. Some people feel like, well, I want to be kind of, I'm willing to be average. I'm going to try to learn and everything do lots of things and maybe God will bless something and then I'll focus on that. Some of you really want to focus. I've just got this one thing I'm really good at, passionate about. I'm just going to do it. Look, either option is open to you. But wisdom is going to say at the end of the day, however you choose to live, be faithful, be generous, be hardworking, invest, be humble, know that you don't know all, you can't control all. But trust that there's a multifaceted component to the world, which is that God's plans and your intentions don't always overlap completely. And the trap we get into is how do I understand God's will is if I can figure out exactly what he wants me to do, I can do it. And, and sometimes God makes that clear. Um, sometimes there's a kind of alignment that you don't really know, but you have the principles that say this seems faithful. Sometimes you're confused and you just act. We don't know, but we never know the work of God. And so therefore, if you think you know what God's will for your life is, do it. But God's will really may be to do something else that you don't understand. And if you don't really understand God's will for your life, be wise, be intelligent, do the best that you can and, and act with given what you know, but recognize that sometimes God's purposes are, are different from what you think. So you think that you're in a career so you could really be a good witness for Christ by showing excellency. And actually God's purpose in having you in that particular field may be relational to meet certain people or through your failure to do something, or not that your colleagues will respect you, but that you'll earn money and that money could be invested in the work of missions. You have no idea specifically what God is doing. And so you should have very specific goals. I would encourage that. Kohelet encourages that. The Bible encourages that. Be intentional, be wise, but sometimes recognize you don't always know what God's going to do. And, and sometimes God will bless what you're doing. And don't take that to mean that God is pleased with everything you're doing, but sometimes it won't work out. And that doesn't mean God is not at work in your life. So this week I had the opportunity, one of my kids' school was having kind of this career day thing. And they had this keynote speaker, an alumni. Now this is from high school. So this is a guy in his seventies or eighties, went to school maybe in the fifties and sixties, had a very good career. And he's, he's sharing about his career. And this is a school with a science basis. And so he chose the school for that. But what he said was, I never planned on doing research or anything like that. And so in, 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 you know, when he was in school, he was, he was good with science, interested in science, but he wanted to be a doctor. That was his goal. So he wound up going to college, having to go to Columbia. I'm, I'm at my office window looking out at Columbia. Many of you are connected with Columbia. He goes to Columbia for college and he does the pre-med thing and he loves the sciences, but he wants to be a doctor. He doesn't do any research at all. Goes to medical school. He graduates early 70s Vietnam War. 
And he graduates while the draft is happening and they want medical school graduates to go to the battlefield to help people. And what he said was he had very strong conscientious objections to the war. He thought the war, the war was immoral. He didn't say, I don't wanna to go to the field and die. Maybe he was really courageous. Maybe in trying to give a good impression, he didn't want to, uh, to make himself look like a draft dodger. I would have no problem. Ecclesiastes is saying death is this terrifying thing. There he is graduating, having this dream of what it would like, look like to start a career. And now he's being told, by the way, you've got, you're going into a war zone in a war you don't agree with. And so there was an option that he could apply for a research program through the government. And he said, I'm going to apply to do that because if I get accepted to this two-year program, then I may not have to go to the battlefield. And he was accepted. And he was talking a lot about his colleagues. He was dropping names. Who else was in that program? Well, Anthony Fauci and all these other people that were in this research program. But here's a guy who had no plans on doing research, wanted to do medicine, but didn't want to go to war. So decided to use his intelligence to do some research. So that was not his plan. Um, but here he is talking to this high school class, however many years later, in 2012, I think it was 2013, he gets a Nobel Prize in chemistry. So here's a guy who wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to help people and he stayed a doctor. He didn't go into research. He stayed practicing um, medicine, but that those two years of, of research kept him in that field. And so you look back and you say, well, well, what was God's purpose? Did God create a war so this guy could make advances medically? No, this is one guy in the midst of this great big thing that the war was not there because of that would, he, should he look back and say the war was such a wonderful thing because look what it did for my career. No, the war was a terrible thing. The thing is he graduated and he had this plan for like 10 or 15 years. And just as it was about to begin, he had no idea what he should do. And then something that he never planned happened. And he looks back and not only did it really enhance his career, but it really contributed to the world in a way that he never anticipated. How much more for people of faith to say, look, we don't know what God is doing. And God gives us gifts and wisdom and ability and resources. And, and we want to take them and we want to use them and we want to do wonderful things. But the nature of life in this world, Ecclesiastes reminds us, is you will often be confronted. You don't know. You can't control. So what does that mean? Give up? It's meaningless. Throw in the towel? No, stop trusting in yourself. <laughs> do you believe that God knows all and God is powerful? And do you understand the work of God? Not really. And so when you don't understand what your work should be, rest in the fact that the God who is putting you into this chaotic situation has already dealt with the whole of your life. What, what is God's work? It's to, to bring you salvation through Christ. If you hope in him, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear rejection or humiliation. You have a great future. As you take hold of that, as you take hold of that, live courageously and know that you'll be rejected and you'll fail, but you're following Christ who was rejected and failed. And yet who has all the power and glory and authority? And so when you join your life by faith with Christ, you're told great things will happen that you will get no credit for, but we're promised difficult things will happen. And so do evangelism. Sow the seed broadly. Will people believe you? Maybe nobody will. Maybe some will. The people you think the nice person who looks like what you think a Christian should be may tell you that they like it and never come to faith. And the person that's always arguing with you 10 years later may come to faith. You don't know. And so don't try to find the one person to share the gospel with, but, but be honest about your faith and be generous. And what are your resources? What do you know about tomorrow? And so plan for tomorrow, but if there are people suffering today, love them and you can do it. Will it work? Let's hope that it will. Let's pray that it will. Let's have the joy of the blessing of fruitful lives. But let's know that in this world, if Jesus Christ spoke the truth and lived a righteous life and he was rejected and humiliated, 
yeah, God may have that for us. Does that mean our lives are wasted? If you're in Christ, your life will never be wasted. That's what we're told. So don't fear rejection. Don't fear failure. Fear wasting your life and doing nothing when God is with you. <laughs> Go into the world and trust him. That's wise. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come as people who may know a lot, but truly we don't know everything. That terrifies some of us, that, um, that, that keeps some of us from acting it over well, some of us with anxiety. Lord, who knows your ways, but who could have anticipated that you would deal with a sinful people by bearing the weight of our sin yourself? I don't know that I would have come up with that, and yet that is your work. And so, Lord, what is your work for my life and for the lives of those of us who are gathered? We don't ultimately know, but, Lord, we, we want to live life in its fullest. We want to have joy. We want fruitfulness. But we also need help because this world is scary. It's infuriating. It doesn't make sense. Lord, help us to have a mature faith that where we wisely trust you and where we recognize, uh, even in this extended season where we don't know who's going to live or die, we don't know how we will get out of this, but we know that you are with us. And so what does it look like to act faithfully this month? Show us uh, and continue to be with us in our worship. Guide us as we reflect personally, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.